Hi, I'm Wade Ierly, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. In this podcast, we introduce you to thought leaders who are shaping the lives of the next generation to discuss the challenges and innovations influencing higher education and how we can adapt to give students a strong foundation for their future. Today, I have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Mikola Abdullah, the 14th president of Virginia State University. He's an internationally renowned educator recognized for outstanding research. Prior to his appointment as president of VSU, Dr. Abdullah served as provost and senior VP at Bethune-Cookman, provost and VP for academic affairs at Florida Memorial, and dean and director of 1890 land-grant programs at Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University, Florida A&M. Dr. Abdullah earned his undergraduate degree from Howard University and his doctorate and master's from Northwestern. He's the youngest African-American to receive a PhD in engineering. Dr. Abdullah is a very active member with various organizations, such as the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities, Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commissions on Colleges, and Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Abdullah. Thank you, Wade. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you've had a pretty storied, pretty interesting career in higher education, and it's not common that folks in higher ed start in civil engineering. Tell, tell me, A, what drew you to civil engineering, and then B, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty uh, that's a sharp pivot. How would you get where you are? When I was in high school, uh, there was a guy who we used to be, we were in physics together. We used to compete with uh, in high school to try to see how good we were, and and I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. And so he used to always say he wanted to be an engineer. And I noticed that the recruiters used to flock around him. So I figured that I should say that I wanted to go into engineering also. And then once I got good at saying I was going into engineering, he started saying he was going into civil engineering. And the recruiters really loved it. And I didn't know which engineering I wanted to go into. So I started saying civil engineering too. And there you go. Like, that's actually the real reason how I got into civil engineering. Now, in hindsight, I really enjoy it. I mean, civil engineering is big things, buildings, ridges, roads, tunnels. And I like the idea of, um, of man and woman building things larger than themselves. And so it's, it's exciting and I love it. But I totally chose it because a high school classmate chose it first and he was getting all the attention. I was just trying to steal some of his attention. But it kind of parlayed that went to went to college and, and loved what my professors did. I thought they were great people. I wanted to I wanted to pay them back and decided instead I would try to pay them forward. And so I went to grad school so I could be a professor, you know, and, and, and that's what ended up happening. I got a Ph.D. and started teaching at FAMU. So I love it. It tells you how important, you know, your peers are. Right. They say you're the average of the five people closest to you. Be friends with future civil engineers. That's right. That's right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. He's a, he, he ended up uh, getting his degree in business and is doing some great work. He didn't even go into engineering, right? I got stuck in it. Um, but you're right. You are a function of who you're around. And I was around some good people. So speaking of being a function of who you're around, under your leadership at BSU, you've had some pretty remarkable achievements, partnerships with local school systems, et cetera. How do you think your work at BSU is you know, impacting the community around you and what, and what you're doing there? Well, you know, that's one of the important things for me is for VSU to be a, a great uh, citizen of the community. Um, I live right around the corner from, from the institution. Um, I think it's important that I'm here. I try to get as many of my faculty and staff to, to live here, uh, to not just uh, partner with the school district as a Virginia State University employee, but to be a, a parent in the district. My wife is on the Economic Development Board here in Petersburg. Um, you know, I think it's critically important that universities play that really important role of building the community, whether it be economic development, community development, educational development, uh, and to partner with your, with your community to make that happen. And here in our area, uh, in central Virginia, uh, right outside of Petersburg, is a particularly uh, challenging area 
uh, that I think that we can play a heavy role in, in helping to bring the area back. And, and I think that's that's really important. So when, in any way that we can partner, uh, we certainly try to do it. So how is enrollment? Do, college, do students in the community, they still understand the value of a college education or what are you seeing? Yes, students do. Um, I think people do. I think one of the important things that we've got to continue to tell young people is that a college education is important. Now, look, I don't believe that a college education is for everyone, right? That's a personal decision. There are very successful people who, who have not uh, chosen post-secondary education. And, and among post-secondary education, a four-year degree may not always be the degree that one needs to get. And so I'm, I'm open and diverse to all those kinds of ideas. But there have been people who have really preached the gospel of everybody doesn't need a four-year degree. And, I, and again, I'm okay with the message. I'm just not always okay with the messenger. Uh, many of the people who preach that, they all have four-year degrees. Many of them are looking to send their kids uh, to four-year institutions. And so then you have to wonder who is the message for. And I worry um, that the message of everybody doesn't need a four-year degree or student loan debt is too high, which also discourages some young people from going to school, that those messages are for black and brown kids, are for low-income kids, who those are the very young people who need access to the American dream. That's what college was supposed to do is to give everybody equal footing on access to the American dream. And so we want to continue to encourage that. So we, we do a lot of that uh, here. Uh, that's a common speech that I give. And I tell young people all the time, you should be ready. You should have the motivation to want to do it. And if you're committed to your education, then I'm going to commit to your education. In your induction speech as president, you, uh, you mentioned that your belief in the transformative power of education. I know in, in, in my own lived experience, right, I was a Pell Grant kid on and off of government programs growing up, uh, it's, an, it's a clear inflection point. Life's trajectory is A, and then it's A plus as soon as you, you know, as soon as I got that degree for me. And, and like you, I understand not every, every kid needs to go, but those that go, uh, I firmly believe need to finish. And, and we know, you know, empirically that college works. Going and graduating works. Going and stopping out doesn't help you. What are you doing at, at BSU to sort of change that national narrative that, you know, a college degree might not be worth it? I think we've got to continue to tell those stories. You know, so many people, so I'm, I'm not like you. So I'm second generation. My mom went to college. She was the first in our generation and in, in our family to go to college of, of all of her sisters and brothers, her eight sisters and brothers. And she was kind of one that laid the foundation of education, higher education in our family. And when I look at my success, right, my success is directly dependent on the fact that my mom got that chance to really be the first, right? So I'm second generation. It's easy to forget um, until I look across my neighborhood and look across the community that many folks whose parents didn't get a chance to have the opportunity that my mom had, they're not necessarily where I am. And so my success, I believe, is primarily based on the fact that my mom got that, got that chance. And so I want everyone to have that kind of uh, community uh, inflection point to be able to change the lives of themselves, their family, and their community and have an opportunity to go to school. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that those of us who aren't first generation, who sometimes take it for granted, that we've got to look back in our history and be able to tell those stories, because some of these young people today are still living the stories of our parents and grandparents. And it's our obligation to give them the opportunity to, to, to move forward. And so I, you know, I, I don't know what everybody calls it something different. Um, um, I know it's this podcast, we'll call it the American dream. But man, look, everybody deserves access to that dream. And the institutions that are doing that work are the ones that are taking the Pell eligible students. They're the community colleges, the HBCUs, the regional colleges uh, that still remember what it means 
to what, what graduating from college can be. One of the things that I lament is that there are presidents of universities today that if they came out of high school with the grades they had in high school today, they wouldn't get into the institutions that they're presidents of today. And that's a problem because if we can't train the next generation of leaders to be the same as us, then, then who are we letting in? So I really believe in opportunity and access. Um, I believe in, in, in these kids and their transformational stories and, and I'm proud to be a part of it. How do we expand access for low-income students to higher education, right? That, there, there are institutions out there that do a great job keeping rich kids rich, and that, that's fine, and nothing, I'm not disparaging that. But there are other institutions whose focus is different, that's right? right. About elevating people, helping them move socioeconomic strata. That's where we need to expand the access, right? So, so how do we work to increase access for those low-income students? Well, look, I think one of the things that's important, and I want to say this as because I want to make sure people know it's not sarcastic, right? One of the things you said was very powerful is that there are institutions whose job it is to keep rich people rich. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That's a really important thing. What we shouldn't do is ask institutions that that's their job to do this job. So there are institutions that are out there that really key in on, and Virginia State is one of them, of how do we make low-income kids rich or give them the best chance uh, to be rich, the best chance to, to, to change the, the median family income. And so, one, invest in the institutions that are already doing that work. If, if, you, if you want to buy fine China, you don't go to Walmart, right? If you want to educate the, the best and brightest uh, students and give them opportunity, you want to go to institutions that, that do that work. We do that work. So look to fund us. Second, um, we've got to all provide more resources for young people and their families. Um, I like to say there are five partners in this higher education game. There's the, there's the young people and their families themselves, right? There's the higher education institution, in this case, Virginia State. Uh, there's the federal government, uh, the state and local government, and then there's private philanthropy. And all five of those partners have to come together and decide that what we want is we want all of the best and brightest in the United States, whether they have the means or not to have access to quality education. And if those five partners come together, we can make it happen. Uh, but it's going to take a lot of work. And we have to continually remind people what college did for them. Everybody has this story of, I worked my way through college and I turned into somebody, right? Well, we want other people to have that exact same chance. And now's not the time to, to, to close the door on people who need that opportunity. Yeah, I, um, I tell people all the time, I ran across a statistic and you'll know it better than I will, but that uh, 50% of all black lawyers and doctors in America graduated in HBCU, 80% of black judges. So when people talk about social justice and not being important to them, HBCUs do that job and no one else does, right? Where we're, we're taking people from those communities, putting them on the bench so they can balance justice and mercy. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. And HBCUs fill this role. You sit on the board of a, board of advisors for HBCUs. As you speak and collaborate with your peers, what kind of opportunities are you seeing where HBCUs can, can build on the successes that they've had? And, and where are the challenges that you think where we can help? I think one of the fantastic things is that the social justice movement of the past couple of years has really highlighted HBCUs in a different way. And that's that's powerful because for many of our institutions that were established soon after uh, the Civil War, um, we were really a part of the first social justice movement. Uh, the first inkling of Black Lives Matter or Black Education Matters was the establishment of historically Black colleges and universities. And when we talk about the the, the volume of doctors, lawyers, of elected officials, congressmen, and, and women um, who went to HBCUs, the question isn't how well have HBCUs done their work? It, the question is, can you imagine what it would be like if we had been funded at a level 
that we supposed to have been funded at uh, for the past 150 some odd years and what this country would look like if we invested in our institutions that have been a part of bringing people up from the beginning. And so for me, that's the conversation because you, you can go back in history, but I like to point people towards the future. If you want a future uh, that looks like everybody having an opportunity, if you want a future that looks diverse and inclusive, uh, what you want to do is you want to fund those institutions um, that are overproducing in the areas that, that, that we help in. And HBCUs have been doing that. Um, we've been telling our story, I think, in a, in a good way, and we, we try to band together to tell it even more. And you, and you can tell I get excited when I tell it. I'm, I'm excited on this on this call now. Um, but I think that be between uh, private philanthropy and the, and the wonderful gifts that Ms. McKenzie Scott uh, has given to many of our states, Virginia has been has acknowledged some of the wrongs of the past and tried to correct it with funding to, to help young people go to college. Um, I think as we continue to do that, I think we'll create a better society. So, so this podcast is about rebuilding the American dream. And I guess the premise in that is that the, that the American dream maybe isn't performing as well as it once did. What, what does the, and, and you've lived an American dream experience, right? And a, a mother's educational attainment is the best predictor of a child's educational attainment. Tell me how you, what you see as or, or define as the American dream and the role that you know, your institution can play in that and in the lives of those kids that, that get to go there. For me, the American dream means this. Everybody gets an opportunity. And with hard work, you can make something of yourself and you can change the direction of, of your family. And I think the part that we've forgotten as universities continue to chase rankings and start to make it more and more exclusive to go. And as we celebrate those institutions that are more exclusive and don't do the work, right? As we do, because that, that's us as a society, uh, university life, universities are the last place where we substitute prestige for a measure of quality. Um, with automobiles, when we see a Bentley, we all know it's expensive and we all want to take a picture, but we're not confused about what the best car is. We know that's an individual choice. We know that the best house isn't always the biggest house, but the best house is a house that does what you need for you and your family. But yet with rankings and, and R1 and, and U.S. News and World Report, we start to believe that those institutions that are the most exclusive, that keep that lock people out the most, are in fact the best institutions in the country. And so first, what we need to do is to remember that the American dream is first about opportunity, that in order to be great or excellent, the first thing you need is a chance or an opportunity. And I think that's the part that's broken. And so what we do in our society, and this is bigger than education, but we reward people who were born on third base and, and, and act like they hit a home run. Uh, instead of really looking at people and saying, you know what, we want to give you a shot. And look, you might not make it. I mean, that's, the, that's, the, the, that's what it means to have an opportunity. Everyone's not guaranteed to succeed, but everyone is guaranteed the opportunity to succeed. And not just once. Over and over, you can make a mistake and you can come back. And that's the other part of the American dream that's so important. If you've had a difficult family experience or you had a tough year in high school and your grades are bad, that should not mean that you don't get a chance. And so I think we've started to forget about opportunity. We've started to forget about access. And that's something that we've got to lean back into and reward and highlight those institutions, whether they be higher education or K through 12, that are doing that work to keep uh, American competitiveness alive. Yeah, that's great. As you are in a role where you've got an entire campus full of students looking up to you and saying, like, here's my example, here's my leader, right? What, uh, what is the advice you would give to them about their futures more generally? They're, already, they're going to college, right? They're at your institution. 
What's the advice you tell them? What do they need to know about life? How do they pursue their own passions, dreams, et cetera, that, uh, that they can come to Dr. Abdullah to really learn? I tell you, now again, I'm not sure this is the best advice, but you asked me what I tell them. I'm going to tell you actually what I tell them. I think first I, t- I say, work hard and treat people nice. You know, the, the basic things. I, I can't guarantee success, but I'm going to tell you, I can almost guarantee success if you're willing to do those two things. If you treat people well um, and you work hard at what you do, um, good things will happen. Uh, and then the other thing, and you know how this is. I mean, you know, we're a little older. I like to tell the kids I'm 178 years old. You know, they always, any excuse to make them laugh. But you have this hindsight now as an older person. And so one of the things I tell the kids is whatever you're worried about today, don't worry about that. The, the things you're thinking about right now, the biggest things on your mind, those things are going to work out. Uh, the young man, a young woman that you're talking to, it's, it's going to work out for better or worse. And it's, it's going to be OK. And, and you're going to find an apartment this summer and you're going to find a job and, and your mom is going to be OK. Or, you know, or, or tough things or, or families go, are going to have difficult challenges. But what you're worried about today, that's going to be OK. And if you work hard and treat people well, your future also will be OK. I try, I try to give them that. I don't think they listen to me, though. I don't, I don't think I listened to myself if I was younger. I still worried about my girlfriend, so I'm, I'm sure they worry about that, too. I mean, I've been married 15 years. I still worry about it. So. Right. <laughs> I've, I've been married 25 years. I tell people I'm still on probation. I, you know, still figuring it out, maybe. One day at a time. It's a really good thing that our wives aren't listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all done in love. I'm, I'm certain of that. Well, Dr. Abdullah, I want to thank you for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. You have been listening to me, Wade Ierly of Degree Insurance, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. You can find out more on our website, americandream.fm, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn at Degree Insurance. Till next time, goodbye.